Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Well, lots of fun stuff going on. Of course, we had the big election. And one of the, uh, one of, and it, there's an interesting app that was uh, developed for Ocasio-Cortez in New York City. Uh-huh. And it actually made a difference in the number of people who voted for her. And this app is quite innovative. I'll explain how it worked. I suspect this is going to be an approach that's going to be taken in, in the future and other elections. Google is about ready to digitize 5 million photos for the New York Times. And the app of the week is going to be it's Apple VoiceOver. Apple, Apple VoiceOver. Yeah, Apple VoiceOver. We've got, is going on here. We've got some sort of VoiceOver going on right now. Hello? We've, we have now, now eliminated the problem, now whatever, we where it was coming from. Back. And yes. this week we are going to feature Alex Hills. He is one of the pioneers on the in Wi-Fi technologies, especially large Wi-Fi networks. He's like a, a radio expert. Uh-huh. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, he's ready to go. Oh, yeah, there we go. We got an email from Jim and Bowie. Dear Tech Talk, I've been listening to the Cut Your Cord shows, and I recently purchased a Tableau so I could stream TV, over-the-air TV, onto my Wi-Fi network. It has a remote feature that allows me to access my over-the-air television even when I'm not at home. Now, in order to do this, I have to set up port forwards on my Verizon Fios router, and the uh, remote access works for a while, and then it stops working. Something like uh, like it's just like happened in here. <laughs> <laughs> and is there a solution to this problem? Enjoy the show, Jim in Bowie. Well, Jim, I solved the problem. Let me explain what Tableau is. I covered that in a previous show. You basically take this device... You hook it up to your antenna, and it takes the antenna signal and puts it into digital format, and it streams it over your Wi-Fi network so any TV in the house can can pick up a station. And, in fact, the uh, TVs can select which station they want to listen to. And um, I have a Tableau that has four tuners in it, so four TVs could listen to four different stations at the same time. The Tableau also includes uh, you can plug a hard drive into it and you can use it as a DVR. So it's really a nice device if you want to have over-the-air television. You've got an antenna in the attic, but you want to send that signal to all the TVs in the house. You don't want to be running coaxial cable over the whole house. Well, it does have this feature that you can stream it over the Internet and you, and you can watch TV when you're not at home and not on your Wi-Fi network. Now, this 
particular device, in order to do that, you have to basically set up port forwards. And a, a port is like a room number. It's It basically, when something comes in at a certain port number, it goes to a particular room, and in that room is a piece of software. So it's a way to tell the computer which piece of software you want to go to. And so when a signal is coming back to request uh, the tab, the action is it's going to go through a particular port request, and that's going to be forwarded to the tablet. So you got to set up those port forwards. So it turns out the Fios router has a function called universal plug-and-play. And this universal plug-and-play allows devices that support universal plug-and-play to request their own port forward so you don't have to do anything. And when you go to your Fios router and hit advanced, you'll bring up... Uh, and then you click on Universal Plug and Play, you've got two options. You've got Universal Plug and Play Enabled, and then you've got Cleanup Enabled. The problem that you're having, Jim, and that I had too, I learned this, is that there's a problem with the cleanup function. It goes in and it cleans up ports that it thinks you're not using, even if you still want to use then, them. So what happened is that it, it basically, you're setting the port forwards up, and then a little bit later, maybe an hour or two later, Cleanup just deletes them, and then your tablet stops working. So what you want to do to fix this thing, first of all, uncheck the remote access on your Tableau app. Then you want to fix your router. You first want to go to the router, click on port forwards, delete all the port forwards that are there. Then you want to hit the advanced button and go to universal plug and play. Then you want to make certain that enable universal plug and play is checked. And then you want to uncheck cleanup enabled. Then you want to reboot your router. Once the router comes back up, simply go to your Tableau app, which, by the way, is a universal plug-and-play app, and then you simply enable uh, remote access, and that puts in a request to set up the, the two ports that you need forwarded, and now those ports will not be deleted, and your router will work indefinitely. I did this fix on mine, and boom, it works perfectly. It took me a long time to figure that out, Jim, because, you know, this feature of Clean up enabled really is not that great of a feature on this um, on this uh, uh, Verizon uh, FiOS router, and I think they need to fix that. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Doctor Schertz. Could you tell us what's going on with the Google quantum computer and what's a qubit? And if it's if it's a, Q, a computer's that fast, how it will affect everyday life on the internet and how it will affect the net? Is AI involved? Love the show. Informative. Thanks, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, this week, Arnie, Google did unveil Bristlecone. It's a new <laughs> it's a new quantum computer with 72 qubits. Now, a qubit is actually a quantum bit. Now, the previous record holder was IBM with a 50-qubit processor. So your regular computer has bits, and a bit is either a zero or a one. Now, a quantum bit could be... It's a superposition of zero and one. It could either be a zero, it could be a one, or it could be anywhere in between it. And so you, and you don't know whether it's a zero or a one until you make the measurement. So you could think of a qubit like if you were flipping a coin in the air, and while the coin is in the air, it's got 50%, it could be heads 50% or tails 50%. You don't, even, you don't know whether it's heads or tails. But as soon as you grab it and put it on your hand, boom, the wave function collapses, and it's either head or tails. But while it's in the air, it's either head or tails. It's a combination of head or tails, like a combination of zero and one. So a qubit's sort of like a, a coin flip. Huh. Now, the interesting thing about quantum computers, though, is that 
Now, what would what? How would you do a quantum computer? It could be a, say, a single electron circling around a phosphorus uh, atom, the outer shell, and that electron could either be spin up or spin down, and that would be correspond to heads or tails. Uh, it could be a Josephson junction, which would be two superconductors separated by a, a, a semiconductor, and the Josephson junction would either have current flowing through it or no current th flowing through it. So it's any system where you have some kind of quantum state that you've created physically. And that, that's, that's the basis of the qubit. Now, the beauty of the qubits is that you can entangle... Elect so I could you could entangle two electrons. So I could entangle two qubits where the electrons are connected to each other. And even if you move those qubits apart, if I measure one qubit, it automatically affects the other one. So you have action at a distance, and this entanglement creates all sorts of additional superimposed states. So instead of just having two superimposed states like heads or tails, if you entangle two qubits, you have four states. And if you have three qubits that are entangled, you have eight states. So in fact, you have two to the n number of qubits if it's fully entangled. Now that leads to a huge amount of information. Just to give you an idea, two to the 300 power, this would be a 300 qubit computer, two to the 300 power is equal to more atoms than there are in the universe. It's a big number. Yeah. It's a big number. And so they're thinking that a qubit that's getting up to, you know, a hundred, a computer with a hundred entangled qubits is getting up to the point where it could do calculations that regular computers could not do. So one of the calculations that they're saying it'll have a big impact on is on cryptology. So cryptology is based on this one simple idea. You take two prime numbers, P times Q, and you multiply them. Prime number one times prime number two, they show that normally as P times Q, and you get some big number M. Now, the, the question in, in quantum, in uh, cryptology, if you have the M, the, the, the product of the two, which is public, can you calculate the two prime numbers that generated N? If you can calculate the two prime numbers that generated M, you can crack cryptology and all of the encryption on the internet dies. Wow. Now, the... The thing is, if you get two large prime numbers, you're talking about a conventional computer taking millions of years to do that calculation. With an entangled qubit computer with actually probably fewer than 100 qubits entangled, you could do the calculation in 100 seconds. So now, encryption is no longer really solid. And so they're saying that's going to be the first thing that go. Now, Richard Feynman also... You can also do th calculations on physical systems, and these can't be done with conventional computers. Like if you take um, a bunch of uh, atoms and you want to see how are they going to react to form a new compound, you've got to do all. You've got to calculate all the electron states, the electron clouds. It's a huge quantum calculation to come up with the final answer. And when they try to actually simulate that now, they get a, an approximate answer because they can't handle all the possibilities that are there to do the full calculation. So as Richard Feynman said, he's a famous physicist, he said, if you want to study real physical systems that are quantum in nature, you need a quantum computer. So quantum computers are going to be very useful things like how do proteins fold. 
And they're going to end up being extremely important in, say, inventing new substances for medicine or for inventing new materials. So physical systems are going to really come here. And so the fact that they've now getting uh, up to 72 qubits, uh, Google is saying that this is now enough qubits that they now are going to be able to do calculations that are not possible to do on conventional machines. Will you be discussing string theory later? Yeah, that's it. I think that now what now one of the problems, okay, now this but now if you've ever seen a quantum computer, they they cool them down to superconductive superconducting temperatures just like it's like a, it's like a hundredth of a of a kelvin, which is a hundredth of a degree above zero. That's colder than outer space, and this is a huge device. Because they, they have to get rid of all the noise. And so qubits actually are noisy. And then you've you, you got to send wires in there to set the initial state on the, on the quantum computer. And so it's very hard to keep them in their entangled quantum state. And, and it's very easy for them to decohere, as they say. And then you get errors in your calculation. So these things are really complicated. And they're very big. And I think, I think we're just in the beginning of trying to see what we can, what we can do with them. But... We are definitely seeing progress in the quantum computer area, and there's going to be huge impact there coming in the future. Uh, we got an email. Uh, we got an e- oh, we got an email from uh, Jim and Bowie. Another one. Lots he of said, gems today. Yeah, he said, "Dear Rick and Jim, I have uh, a, a Daniel Dakota grandfather clock that's controlled by the WWVB time signal. I've had this clock for about 20 years." Now, when they, whenever the time changes, you know, comes the daylight savings time, I drag the whole clock to the front window, point it to the west, and then I wait for it to pick up the WWVB signal. It worked every year except this year, and for some reason it didn't pick it up and would not reset. I pulled the battery out for a couple of seconds to force it to look for the, for the time signal again. It just stays in search mode. I also heard a rumor that the government's considering discontinuing the WWVB Time service. Now, is WWVB off the air now? And if it is, what can I do? Okay, the good news is WWVB is still operating. Their website indicates that they did have three outages in 1998. They had had an outage on September 19th, September 20th, and October 28th, and these were just for short time periods. Now, the Trump administration did propose cutting the funding next fiscal year. And NIST is fighting that request because hundreds of millions of clocks like yours would no longer be serviced. Uh-huh. And you'd have to set your clock manually. And and who broke this story last week? Uh, yes, I did. That's the co-host, my co-host. You didn't believe me. I didn't believe it. The co-host brought it up, and it was correct. And so if, in fact, they—now, it turns out, of course, you can get the time over the Internet. So I think what will happen, if they actually shut that down, the new clocks will be Wi-Fi enabled, ah. and they will get the time through your Internet connection. But but that doesn't the, do any good for the other clocks. They'll no, be out of luck. You have to it, get a new clock. You're pretty much going to be out of luck. Now, they all have a little, um, they all have, a, like, probably they're going to be companies that will go in and they will change the in, inner workings of the clock for you if you ah. want to keep the clock. Ah, gotcha. So I'm thinking... That's interesting. I'm thinking that... Because well, it, normally that whole that whole mechanism, that radio de- receiver, is just a little plastic square box in yep. the back of the clock. You just mm-hmm. pull it out and pop in another one, and then, it, and then it just hooks to the... Uh, 
you know, hooks to the to the to the hands. Mm-hmm. Now, WWVB continuously broadcasts digital time codes at 60 kilohertz. Now, for those of you that were wondering, 60 kilohertz is a wavelength of 5,000 meters. Mm-hmm. So that's called the 5,000 meter band. Okay. Now, the time codes are broadcast continuously in two different formats. One is pulse width modulation, and the other one is phase modulation. The pulse width modulation was the original encoding method that they started back in the 60s, and in 2012, they started phase modulation. Phase modulation is a lower noise receiver. It's actually better, sort of like, that's why, that's why FM is better. And so the pulse modulation, it, the, the phase modulation was added in 2012, provides a more reliable service. Now, if you're worried to, whether the uh, whether the clock is on, you whether the uh, whether the station is broadcasting, they have a phone number, and you can listen to the actual signal being broadcast. So you can dial 303-499-7111, and you can listen to the actual signal that's being transmitted by WWVB. Now, the reception, Jim, is best at night Yes. when the radio waves bounce off the ionosphere, mm-hmm. just like you're skipping a rock over, over the water. Now, the signal strength is affected by rainy weather, so chances are we've had so much rain recently that that, that affected your reception. Now, the best practice is to put your clock in the window facing west toward Fort Collins. You're already doing that. Remove and replace the battery, which you've done. That forces the clock to search for a signal. Leave it overnight and hope for clear weather. Low battery and poor positioning are the main reason for failure. Now, another issue that you might have, keep the clock away from noise. Computer monitors create noise at Linderford. You want to be at least 10 feet away from computer monitors or televisions. Any appliances with electric motors, like a refrigerator or an air conditioner, you want to keep at least 10, 15 feet away from those. And what are really noisy are neon or fluorescent lights. Yeah. So turn those, I love yes. those make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Now, NIST has a little booklet that gives you all the best practices, and you can download it. I'll give you a link uh, link to that on the, on the show outline. Now, my clocks reset without a problem. But here's the thing, Jim. My clocks were manufactured in 2012, so I use the more sensitive phase modulation. Your clock is more than 20 years old, and it uses the pulse modulation, which is more susceptible to noise. Ah, so there you go, but but good luck. Oh, I did, by the way, get get a get an email just as I was walking in. He said this morning, his clock set because it had been rainy last week, and we finally had a clear night. Well, that's the thing; the, the sky's cleared out. Can, may I have a sidebar? Yes. So you're talking about this is an AM station. So yeah. for comparative purposes, we're at fifteen hundred AM, uh-huh. and this is a fifty thousand watt directional station. At night, you can hear us in. Florida, down in Bermuda, you can hear us up in the Maine. So I just looked up WWVV, uh-huh. which is 60 uh, kilohertz. 60 kilohertz. The further down you go on the AM band, mm-hmm. the better the propagation is. So mm-hmm. that's a very low AM frequency. It is. It is. And I found out that K- uh, WWVB is a 70,000 watt uh, transmitter. So the, the most the, the the biggest commercial transmitter is you know fifty thousand watts for a radio station. Mm-hmm. So imagine how that propagates. I just found something. Yes. This is the sound of WWVB. You want to listen to this? Yes, I'd like okay. to hear it. Whoa. Oh, okay, I think whoa. we can stop that. Oh, whoa. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so there you go. Everything you wanted to know about WWVB, right? Yes, indeed. Uh-huh. Excellent. We got an email from uh, David in Boulder. Dear Tech Talk, I've been hearing about the dark web scans. 
and uh, companies want to scan the dark web to see if my private information has been stolen is available. What are these services doing? Are they worth it? Enjoy the show, David and Boulder. There are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of um, uh, of those dark web scans out there, scams as I call them out there. Experian and many other companies are pushing this dark web scam. They promise to search the dark web for your personal information to see if criminals are selling it. But don't waste your money. Now, the dark web consists of hidden websites you can't access without special software. For, for instance, Tor, which is the Onion Router, which is a which is a way to use proxy servers to to keep anonymous. Tor software can be used for anonymous browsing of the normal web, but it also hides special sites known as Onion sites or Tor mm. hidden services. Now, these are legitimate. It's legitimate to have some Tor hidden services because it allows people in oppressive countries to access banned sites. For instance, Facebook has a Tor site, and and other companies which are frequently banned in other in in, in repressive countries, they they'll have a Tor site. But it's also used by criminals to sell stuff, and they'll try, and if they'll and if they steal credit card information or identity information, they'll try to sell it on the web. But here's the deal: if they're selling your stuff, they're not publishing it. It's it's like it's like secret, and the only people that get to see copies of it are people who have bought it. So the only thing that these that these guys that are scanning the dark web are doing, they're basically accessing basically public data dumps that where people have just dumped a lot of data and it's available out there, and chance and that but and so if you're not in a public data dump, it doesn't mean that somebody else isn't trying to steal your stuff. Here's the thing. You can get the public data dumps checked for free. There's a website called I've Been Pawned. <laughs> I've Been Pawned, P-W-N-E-D, and the website is Have I Been Pawned. That's haveibeenpawned.com, haveibeenpawned, P-W-N-E-D.com. You go there, and you put in your email address, and it will tell you whether you, whether you are listed in any, one, any of those 322 public data dump sites, and that's pretty much all these guys are doing, so you don't have to pay for it at all. Listen, we love your emails. We do indeed. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the show live by following us on Periscope at... Uh, WFED uh, Tech Talk. Of course, you have to download the Periscope app to your device first. And I apologize to our Periscope viewers for dropping you on the counter earlier in the show, but that problem has been fixed. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. I think he swallowed his Salem. Yes. That's why I was... uh... Today, low, listen. Low today, we're going to feature Alec, Dr. Alex Hills. He's a, a distinguished service professor at Carnegie Mellon. He and his tim, team built the first big Wi-Fi network at Carnegie Mellon. Mm. He is one of the pioneers that actually helped get Wi-Fi out there big time. He's a real innovator. Many people have called him the father of Wi-Fi, but actually. I think the real father of Wi-Fi is the guy that set the standards, 802.11 standards, and we've already featured him. So maybe we'll call him the um, first son of Wi-Fi rather than the father of Wi-Fi. But he is a great, great innovator in technology. Alex Hills was born in 1943 in Caldwell, New Jersey. He was His father encouraged him to get interested in, in radios and radio transmission. So... Uh, he he actually studied and got his novice class ham radio license at age 14. Now that meant that he had to basically, uh, you know, trans, you know, read Morse code at five words a minute. That's the novice level, and he got his general class a year later. That meant he was up to 13 words a minute. I mean, by the time he was done, he was he got up to around 30 words a minute in uh, Morse code reading. He built his first transmitter and receiver from a kit. Then later on, he bought some surplus equipment. He had this whole ham radio studio up in the corner of his room, and radio radio became his passion. He was really interested in trying to understand how waves ba- bounced around and why certain frequencies you would pick up at night but not in the day. And so he really, through experimenting and playing around with his ham radio system, he began to understand the mysteries of radio transmission. He received his Bachelor of Science from Rensselaer, Polytechnic Institute in 1964. Then he went around, and it was, he really didn't know what he wanted to do with his life, so he started teaching engineering at various institutions around the country here and there. And then he decided to go back to graduate school and get his master's degree at Arizona State University in engineering. But he was looking for some excitement. He'd, he, and he was like, you know, this teaching and all this stuff is not exciting. So he joined the Army. Mm-hmm. He joined the Army, and he served in the in the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Oh, ah, well, yeah. You see, guys, he's a ham radio guy. Right. And he was also served as a company commander in Korea, so I don't think he was in combat. I think all of his radio work kept him in that uh, Signal Corps. Then he got out of the uh, Army got, uh, after a couple of years, and he was still looking. He said, I just don't want to take a 9-to-5 job. He was still looking for something exciting. So he decided to move to Alaska, and he was hired by RCA 
to install VHS communication systems to 40 to 142 remote Alaskan villages. Hmm. Now, these are really Alaskan, you know, remote villages. Because, you know, Alaska's got a few big towns, but all of the native... They, you know, we used to call them Eskimos, but now they're they're different. They're three or four different, you know, uh, native tribes up there, were spread all over Alaska in these small villages that would just be like, you know, a hundred people, three hundred people, very small, all over the place, and they were they were not connected by roads, and there was no way to to get back to them. And RCA uh, wanted to become the telecom provider for Alaska when they bought the. Um, the military VHS system that was actually connecting large cities. And when they bought it for $28 million, Alaska said, we'll sell this to you if you promise to, to extend the service to the villages. And so he started going out, and he started installing these VHS antennas. And this, So let me ask you a question. You mean VHS or VHF? VHF. Oh, VHF. okay, all right, because I was looking at VHS because I'd never heard of no, that. No, VHS. Okay, VHS. So it's a, ra- it's a radio. Very high yeah. frequency, VHS. Okay, sorry about VHF. that. Yeah, what am I saying? Yeah, VHF, very high frequency communication systems. And uh, and so he he was, and, he, and they basically, these VHF is direct line of sight. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it it's really. It's FM radio, right? Yeah, it really doesn't bounce off the ionosphere. It, it does, it, it's not carried on the ground like, like a ground wave. It actually has to be line of sight. So he, this was where he learned what he calls about the five bad boys of radio. <laughs> okay, the five bad boys of radio are shadowing, when uh-huh. something gets in your way and blocks yep. the signal. Reflection, where you reflect off a surface and get multipath. Refraction, where this, where the beam is bent by changes in, changes in the atmosphere. Then you've got scattering, where you're scattered by a rough surface, and diffraction, where you you sort of. Where you you have a sharp surface and you have kind of a, a diffraction as you sort of bend around the surface. Mm-hmm. Those are the five bad boys of radio that that you really get used to when you're working with VHF communication systems. So he he was out taking he was going out by pontoon plane out to these remote <laughs> areas. I mean, it's like it's like minus yeah sixty degrees. It's- it's like frozen desert, is what it is. And and a lot of these villages are on the are right on the coast, and 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 the wind is is about fifty to sixty miles an hour wind. Mm-hmm. So he's installing these VHF antennas in the wind in minus fifty degree weather, and and uh, and actually he he loved it because he got to know the people. They were so nice, and and they needed communication to. You know, to get medical help, they they had shortwave radio systems. Now, shortwave radios they could they could communicate to, uh, to, to other cities, but shortwave bounces off the ionosphere, and the problem is you've you've got the um, you've you've got the, the 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 northern lights, the aurora borealis, as uh-huh. they say, the aurora, which is basically an electrical storm uh, in the in in. In the in the ionosphere, and when you've got the aurora borealis up there, the the, the northern lights, the rate the shortwave radio waves do not bounce off the ionosphere, and then you lose all communication. So the shortwave was not reliable, and they want to get some. They want to get VHF in order to in order to make it reliable. So so he started putting these things up. He he got out to about 22, 23 of the of the small. Of, of the small villages, one was well, there was one interesting one. He 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 went to a, a village on, on um, on the little Diomedine Island, the little Diom Diomedine Island, uh, 
And this is a small island in the Bering Strait. And it's right beside the big Diomedid <laughs> Island, the big Diomede Island. And the big Diomede Island is controlled by Russia. And the little Diomede Island is controlled by the U.S. And the border between the two countries is right between the islands. Interesting. And so they were on the western side of the island, so they couldn't even see the main, mainland Alaska. So he aimed the VHF antenna to bounce off the cliffs at Big Diomedy and then reflected back to the mainland. So mm-hmm. in that case, one of the bad boys of radio was helpful, reflection. Yes. So he, this, this is what he did. Now, the problem with this VHF um, uh, communication is that some of the... Uh, some of the uh, villages were so far away that they couldn't reach all the way back to a to a main communication city unless you had a repeater which was sitting on top of a mountain. And the problem is, if you put a repeater on top of a mountain, and these there are heavy winds up there, like 70, 80 miles an hour, yeah. you, you've got to fly in diesel fuel to keep the generators going. In order to in order to which run, which is tough to do in seventy and eighty mile an hour winds. It is tough to do, and and really not not a very good plan. And no. so, and so you know, RCA was not moving with this project at all. They, they they I mean, they sort of said we'll do it, but in order to get the main to buy the main system, but their commitment to getting to getting uh, communication to all of the villages was really not that strong. And so Alex just got totally fed up with them, and he quit in frustration. And then he went, and he was hired by a public radio station that just started out, WKOZ. It was in Kotzebue, Kotzebue. It turned out that these radio stations could not really afford very many people. No, they can't. And, and they really needed an engineer, uh, and, and they figured if they hire a general manager, he can't do anything. So what they do, they advertise yes. for an engineer, and they and they don't tell them about the man, and they say, oh, by the way, you're also general manager. Yes, so you wind up doing a lot of different yeah. things. And so he mm-hmm. he'd make the coffee, put the paper in the teletype machine. Probably was on the air. He was on the air. Alex in the morning. <laughs> he had a show. Alex Wait a in minute. the morning. <laughs> we have a super high frequency omnidirectional antenna here. Let's see if we can listen to KOTZ. Okay. Serving the needs of the polar bear community in northwest Alaska and the greater frost belt. This is public radio, K O T Z. There it is. How wow, we got it. It wow. sounds crystal clear here that in DC, is doesn't fantastic. it? Fantastic. So he and and they had all sorts of features on this K O T Z where people would call in and say, you know, bring milk home for dinner. I mean, because they, they, there was no way that they could communicate. But you know what? You see this a lot. If you go if you go up into Maine, into uh-huh. rural Maine, you see a lot of. Community radio stations as these low power. They're not yep. a full full power radio station. They're mm-hmm. low power and they serve the community. And this is how these people get stuff like that that's, out. That's how they do it. Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, <clears throat> Alex believed that the only way to get uh, phone service to these remote villages with with satellite links, mm-hmm. because then you don't need to have these uh, repeater stations on hilltops or on mountains. You basically the satellite is your link. And and RCA said no, that's too expensive because they 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 all they were always putting in these uh, these ten meter dishes which are thirty feet and they they weigh tons and very expensive. He said no, small satellite dishes should be enough for the villages. And RCA said no, that would never work because they're basically connecting with geosynchronous satellites that are that are you know that are quite a distance down near the sort of more toward the equator. And so uh, he he actually um, got. 
them, put pressure on them to come up and test it, and the small satellite earth stations worked fine for the remote villages. But then RCA was still not fighting. So he was at KOTZ then, still at KOTZ. He was mm-hmm. working there. But his mission was to get telephone service to these remote villages. So then he, uh, he went to the politicians, and he convinced the politicians that, they sh- that, that, that really that was a good solution. And he got the state legislature in Alaska to allocate $5 million to buying these uh, satellite dishes, these small satellite dishes for the, uh, for the earth stations, for the remote, remote villages. And that would have bought around 100 of them. Then all of a sudden, RCA got worried. It looked like Alaska was going to go in competition with them. So they said, well, well, no. well, let's go back and look at that. And so they <laughs> and so they cut a deal and they said, look, if you buy, if you spend five million dollars and buy these uh, these dishes, we will pay to install them and we'll maintain them and we'll mm-hmm. run the network. Hmm. So that seemed like a pretty good uh, a, you know, a pretty good deal. And I'm thinking Alex was the driver behind that. So. See, there's something about, you know, there are people that can invent things or people that innovate. Innovators are people that get it done, get it deployed, and get it out there. Right. You know, a lot of people that come up with great ideas that never go anywhere. Alex is an innovator. He pushes it until it's done. And his goal was to get phone service to these remote villages. So he got this system started, and they, they put these dishes in each of these villages. Now, it turned out when the villages were were set up before with uh, with the VHF system. There was one telephone in the village, say at the uh, central store, and everybody used one phone. You'd go there, and they'd keep a log. If you made a long distance call, you'd write down on the log how long you talked, and so they'd know how much it would, it would cost. And they'd divvy up the bill at the end of the month. But one phone in a village is not very satisfying, and so they really needed a, something better than that. And so then Alex got the idea. He said, why don't we... Set up now that we've got these satellite dishes. Let's set up a telephone exchange in each town so that everybody has their own phone. Then the telephone exchange is connected to the satellite dish. So that's what he did. And so he organized. He did it. He organized the OTZ Telephone Cooperative. Now, OTZ actually is the name is the are the three letters that designate the airport at Kazabu. Uh, of course, at Kazabu, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. OTZ. So it was the OTZ Television Cooperative, and he, he bought the equipment. He went out. He was president of the, of the cooperative, and he went out, and he set this thing up in all of these. And they picked 10 villages in their cooperative, and he went out and set up the individual telephone switches, telephone exchanges in each town, and then he connected that to the satellite dish, and all of a sudden— Bingo. They actually, for the first time in their life, they had a phone that was right in their house. It was transformational for these villages. And then what happened is then other villages wanted it. And so ultimately, there were more cooperatives formed. And Alex showed the other cooperatives how to set it up. And each cooperative would have, say, like 10 villages. And so ultimately, all of the villages actually had phone service at their location. And it was because Alex Hill drove it, drove it to completion. He finished this job. Finally, all the villages got their uh, got their service by the end of um, 1977 or so, or early 77. So he said, mission accomplished. He left Alaska. 
and he decided to finish work on his Ph.D. So he enrolled at Carnegie Mellon, and he completed his Ph.D. in 1979. And after graduation, he was hired at CMU to teach. And he was, of course, he's going to teach radio. And in 1993 there at uh, Carnegie Mellon, he became the founding director of the Information Networking Institute. And this was where they were going to come up with all sorts of advanced technologies for networking. And they said, well, what is our big project going to be? And this was back in 93. This was be, even before there were Wi-Fi standards, by the way. There was no 802.11. There were no standards yet. And they said, let's do wireless. And so they decided to set up a wireless system on the campus. And, and nobody had ever set up a huge wireless system. There were wireless access points that were set up. There'd be one wireless access point maybe, and it would just be in one room. But how do you set up a wireless system that covers a whole building and a whole campus. And so they decided to work on it. And how do you get software to support it? So the Information Networking Institute, they worked on the technology to bring out a wireless network. Now, Alex, you know, always called it, because these are just radios, really. But, yeah. but the new word for radio is wireless. Mm -hmm. You know, so they, it's now wireless. And so they basically teamed up with uh, Lucent. And Lucent had made uh, individual... Um, uh, this we're making individual access points, and that actually at that point they were at nine nine hundred and ninety five megahertz. It was it was one of the unlicensed bands, and so they 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 got uh, five hundred thousand dollars from the National Science Foundation, and they started working on this uh, this this large wireless rate. And the and the issue was how can you place all of these Wi Fi access points so that you can, you have full coverage in a building? And that was a huge project that they that they worked on. Now, this network was called Wireless Andrew, after, you know, Carnegie Mellon, Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Mellon. So it was Wireless Andrew. And actually, the first network on Carnegie Mellon was called Andrew. Mm -hmm. So this is Wireless Andrew, <laughs> you see. But in addition to working on the wireless thing, they had people working on uh, software that would automatically automatically transfer from the Wireless Andrew to cellular when, when it dropped off. They were working on software that would automatically handle distributed files and synchronizing digital files, even when you were coming in and out of connection on the wireless network. So they were working on all the different elements that would take uh, wireless technology to make it transparent to the user and just work seamlessly, all things that we take for granted now. And this was back in 1993. That's uh, more than 20 years ago they were doing this, you see. And the standards for Wi-Fi didn't come out till 95. So, so they ended up finding a way. They, they tried to calculate where to put all these access points, and they really, they, there was really no good way to calculate it. So they ended up just sticking access points on the wall and then measuring signal levels around the building. And they, through trial and error, they developed a, they developed a good distribution of access points for the building. And then they, they launched uh, Wireless Andrew at this, at using the Lucent uh, access points at like 900 um, uh, megahertz. Then two years later, we had the we had the Wi-Fi standards, which were 802.11. Now you know the eight, that was an IEEE uh, IEEE group, the 802 group, and you know why they're called 802? Because the first meeting that the 802 group had was in February 1980. Ah, 
802. Mm -hmm. And then the 11th standard that they worked on was for wireless LANs. 802.11. 802.11. Yeah, that's right. So I'll just give you a little history there. And so, so they, and so then. Uh, and he he turned uh, wireless Android into a production network, but then they wanted to really get better throughput because this 995 megahertz there was only one channel in it, and and they they, they couldn't get enough throughput, so they, he wanted to use the new standard. So he went to Lucent and he proposed to them, why don't you give us uh, 400 uh, of the 802.11 um, access points, which are which operate at 2.4 gigahertz? That's that's another unlicensed band, and. And we will develop techniques to, to deploy these things to make large-scale Wi-Fi networks. And so they agreed to do that, and then they upgraded the whole network there at Carnegie Mellon, and they, uh, and they developed the technique for designing the Wi-Fi networks. Now, Alex Hills designed what he called a rollabout, which, 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 was, a, which was used in Wi-Fi network design. It had, it had Wi-Fi detector. It had a laptop. And you'd roll it around the halls. And they would duct tape um, access points at different at different areas on the floor, and they would roll the rollabout around and make measurements. And then the and then the rollabout would then do calculations to calculate how they should move those access points so they would be more optimized. Mm-hmm. So they ended up uh, ended up uh, really developing that, and 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 they worked with Lucent because they were working on technologies at Lucent on how can you hand off from one access point to another. How can you dynamically adjust the power of one access point if it's overlapping too much with the next access point? How can you dynamically allocate which channel you're on so that you minimize uh, you, you minimize interference between all the access points? So they're working with Lucent on developing that technology. So it was very much involved at the formative stages of Wi-Fi. So some people think he should be called father of Wi-Fi, and others think he's just the, the first son the first, of Wi-Fi. First son. Now... Now, Dr. Hills also worked, and the thing is, he was the radio guy. Of course, radio guy, was for him, it's all antennas. Mm-hmm. He thinks the whole deal is antennas, and he says, and why are we having trouble designing this Wi-Fi network to work in the building, to work all over the campus? We're, we're having trouble because the bad boys of radio always come there back. There you go. Shadowing, reflection, refraction, scattering, and diffraction are always causing problems. No matter what you do, he says, the bad boys come back to haunt you. Now, Dr. Hills worked with CMN students on many projects in developing countries. He would take, he was one to deploy wireless systems, wireless access to remote villages all over the world. I mean, he was carrying sort of what he was doing in Alaska, but to other countries. And um, and he just loved to, you know, to get students in, use, in, in, you know, in projects that will help others. Now, he holds 18 patents. He retired in 2010 from Carnegie Mellon, and he he, he loves Ohio, uh, Alaska. Alaska. He moved. He now lives in Palmer, Alaska. You know, so I, I read two books that he had. One of them is mm. one of them is Wi-Fi and the Bad Boys of Radio. It was a great read. And another one is uh, was about connecting the Alaskan villages. So the last two days, I've read two of Alex Hill's books, and this guy is an innovator. He makes stuff happen. There you go. And, you know, I looked up Kotzebue, Alaska. Uh-huh. Uh, population uh, 3,021. Average daytime high in June is 56. Uh, actually, uh, June is uh, 50 degrees. Wow. Nighttime low in uh, February is 10 below the average nighttime low.
That's right. Right now at Public Radio KOTZ, <laughs> it's 28 degrees. And here in Washington, it's 40 degrees. This is Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I know you're excited here being in very the studio. Excited. That's right. Very excited. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Andrew said that we're the real bad boys of radio. Yeah, I don't think he's wrong about that, but nice about try. That. That's right. Okay, this is in addition to a radio show. It's a classroom of the airways, mm-hmm. and if you get a correct answer to a pop quiz to prove that you are listening to the show, you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our uh, dining rooms. Earlier in the show, I talked about Dr. Alex Hills. He, of course, is one of the pioneers in Wi-Fi networks. When he was in Alaska... He worked at a public radio station. What are the call letters of that public radio station? If you know the answer to today's question, well, you'd speed things up if you picked up the phone and gave us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're trying to get your ham radio to connect to Wi-Fi in Canada... Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. And of course, that pesky international line, 877-936-39333 or 1-800-GOT-JUNK. 
And now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. And if you're trying to reach us from Little Diomedy Island, you can reach us on Skype. Simply connect to Tech Talk Radio 1, and your call will come through free of charge. And Mitchell our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control is standing by to take your call, so dial now. Let's talk about the app of the week. It's okay. Apple VoiceOver. This is actually a pretty powerful app. And here's an example of somebody who used it. In 1993, Scott Leeson was U.S. Army veteran who had seven years of service as a visual communications expert. Unfortunately, he also, that year that he got out, he lost his vision in both eyes when he was shot during a robbery attempt. Mm. 25 years later... Leeson has his iPhone XR and the iOS voiceover feature to help him with his everyday life, and that includes regular surfing sessions in the San Diego area. VoiceOver is a gesture-based screen reader that lets you enjoy the iPhone even if you can't see the screen. With VoiceOver enabled, just triple-click the home button to access it whenever in iOS. You'll hear a description of everything that's happening on your screen from battery level to who's calling to which app is on your finger. You can adjust the speaking speaking rate and pitch to suit you. Because VoiceOver is integrated with iOS, it works with all the built-in iPhone apps. You can create custom labels for buttons, including third-party apps. And Apple works with the iOS developer community to make even more apps compatible with VoiceOver. With the help of his new iPhone XR, Leeson is able to get ready for a day of surfing by checking the latest surfing reports. He also uses the Apple Watch 4 to monitor his progress of his surfing workouts. This app has made him independent. And the, th- the thing that is amazing, when now he doesn't use the app when he's actually surfing. He uses it just in his regu- regu- regular everyday life. But he has learned when he's surfing to listen to the waves. And he says while he's surfing, he almost forgets that he's blind. Huh. And he said it's just super relaxing. That is a fantastic app. It is. Apple VoiceOver. All right, we don't have a call yet. This okay. is crazy. Doc, I asked yeah. the question once again. Earlier in the show, I talked about Dr. Alex Hills, a distinguished service professor at Carnegie Mellon. What was the name of the public radio station that he that he uh, became uh, engineer and general manager, manager there of in Alaska? Or if you want, you could give the name of the Wi-Fi network that he had at Carnegie Mellon. We'll give you... Two, Two options. There you go. Or tell, tell us who the real bad boys of radio are. That's 877-936-9333. Right. <laughs> Dial no. <laughs> That's right. Now let's talk about a uh, this novel app that was used to uh, tilt the elections. I would say influence the elections. In the wake of the 2016 presidential elections, app developer Leo Sosin, Susan was very unhappy with the with the results of that, and he wanted to become more political active. So he volunteered for a long-shot candidate, the 29-year-old Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in New York City. Mm-hmm. Suzanne offered his programming skills to the campaign during his off hours, and he and his business partner, Jake DeGroote, created REACH, a reimagined way that volunteers found other sympathetic voters. Historically, voter campaigns reached out voters through a process called canvassing or making direct contacts with people door-to-door. But Suzanne's app is different. It made it easier for volunteers to find brand-new voters, regardless of whether they had voted in a previous election or registered as a Democrat in the past. It was a technical solution to one of the campaign's key principles. Ocasio-Cortez wanted to expand the electorate to help more people take part in the political process. 
Now, using reach, volunteers were able to target new voters on the street, at the mall, or basically anywhere, and they could log their interactions. Canvassers no longer were confined to a list of people who had voted. If they met somebody, they could add their name, add their contact information to the list on the spot, and that worked for all major platforms, iOS, Android, web browser. It made it easier for them to get into the hands of the right people. And once they had the contact information, they could keep contacting them and in the vote, the get out the vote activity. When Ocasio-Cortez faced off against the Joe Crowley, that was the incumbent who was supposed to win, he, he, he was a 10-term incumbent, mm. she beat him. But her winning margin was only by 15%. And it turned out that 10% of her voters came from the Reach app, and the Reach app had only been used for three weeks before the election. Wow. That's so that crazy. dramatically altered. In fact, other people discovered this app, and other campaigns wanted it. It was now used by 20 other Democratic uh, campaigns uh, since since it's been released. And I think this is going to make a big difference in future elections coming up. Okay, we got to make this fast. We do have somebody who'd like to play our game. Let's go to the international line. Here is Jim calling Vienna from Vienna, Virginia. Jim, good morning. Dr. Schertz, the question, please. Yes, early morning I talked about Alex Hills. Alex Hills, what was the uh, public radio station that he, uh, that he first uh, broadcast with, or what was the name of his network at Carnegie Mellon? Uh, the radio station was KOTZ. That is correct. That is correct. Perfect. Very good. Thank you very much, Jim. Hang on. We're going to send you back over to uh, Andrew, and he will take your information. There you go. And, of course, that radio station again This was... is public radio. K-O-T-Z. There you go. All right, Doc. Continue there, on. There we go. Forge ahead. Google is going to digitize 5 million uh, historical photos at the time. Now, the time doesn't keep bodies in their morgue. It keeps pictures. It's basement under the Times Square office, stuffed with cabinets and drawers. They store five to seven million images, along with about information about why, when they were published and why, and a lot of notes. The morgue, as it is now called, goes all the way back to the 19th century. Google, using AI, will scan all the handwritten typewritten notes attached to each image. They'll categorize them by semantic information that they contain, linking data to locations and dates. Google says the time will be able to use this object recognition tool to extract even more information from the photos. Now, the, this, these pictures will not be available to the public as they were when Google worked with Time Magazine's archive, but hopefully that will be next because that is a great way to get information out and about. Listen, there you go. Oh, my goodness. This time this hour just flew by. Mm-hmm. And we love all of your emails. We'll get back to you as soon as we have those emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And if it's an emergency, I might even might even get back to you right away. And I've yes. done that on occasion. Tech emergency. That's right. And we'd also like you to go to the Stratford University website. You go to www.stratford.edu. Check out the programs there and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.